Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming this morning uh, on a Saturday morning, a very, very cold um, but very bright Saturday morning. Um, And welcome to today's event. My name is Dr. Richard Perkins, and I'm an associate professor in the Geography and Environment Department at the LSE. I'm also associate of the Grantham Research Institute. And it's going to be a great pleasure to welcome you to today's event called The Future of Fashion. Can the industry be in vogue and sustainable? Um, And I think this is a a really interesting topical subject area. Um, Well, how are we going to run today? We're very lucky to have four fantastic panellists with us. But before I introduce them, I'd just like to run through just a bit of housekeeping and the order of events today and just give you a brief introduction, a brief context to what some of the issues we'll be talking about. Um, just, uh, just in case the fire alarm does go off, and I pray it doesn't, um, please just make your way up uh, through the nearest fire exit and leave the building. Um, today's event lasts about an hour and 15 minutes, uh, and also I'll be probably wrapping up uh, just before 12.15 today. Um, and how this will work is I will ask our panellists some questions, and then I'll open it up to you, the audience, to ask some questions of your own. The fashion industry and the apparel industry um, has grown dramatically um, over the past 20 years or so. Um, I was looking at some figures from McKinsey, and they were saying that uh, the the volume of production of the apparel industry doubled between the year 2000 and 2014. And during that period, the amount of clothing people bought increased by 60%. Um, every year. So there's quite a significant increase over those 15 years or so. So it's a rapidly growing industry. It's a rapidly growing sector. And there are a number of potential factors behind this trend. One is the growth of fast fashion, which I'm sure some of you have heard about. And fast fashion is, is a phenomenon built around time, speed, cost, new systems of production logistics, whereby fashion retailers can deliver different ranges, very very sort of changing styles very, very quickly to satisfy consumer demand at a very, very cheap cost. Gone are the days where there's just two seasons, um, sort of summer and winter. Today, there are many micro-seasons within certain areas of fashion, um, and this is all part of the fast fashion industry. Another interesting factor behind the growth of the apparel industry, I think, is the, emer- the growth of demand in emerging markets. It's not only Western markets where there's growing demand for, for, for clothing and apparel. It's also in emerging markets. Now, of course, if you look in developing countries, the actual per capita level of consumption of clothing is way below, but it's growing quite rapidly. Now, why is this important? I think this is important because apparel, the clothing industry, has significant environmental impacts. Uh, The industry is an intensive user of land, air, and water. Uh, Just to take one example, cotton, which is a mainstay of the fashion industry, the apparel industry, is very, very water-intensive. Um, So I was looking at some figures from WWF, and they reported that a T-shirt, just to produce one T-shirt, it could require up to 2,700 litres of water. 
And synthetics don't fare much better. They have also have significant environmental implications. Um, so if we look at uh, materials like polyester, the amount of greenhouse gases associated with polyester production is equivalent to 185 coal-fired power stations every year. So very, very significant. On all those bright colours, there's a significant environmental impacts associated with those, with the dyes you use, etc. So it's an industry with significant environmental impacts. And this raises a whole series of very, very interesting issues. Whose responsibility is it to address these issues? Is it the producer? Is it the consumer? What sort of business models can we potentially think about uh, to try and make fashion more sustainable? And are there examples we have today which we can think about upscaling where we can move to a more sustainable fashion system? So these are the issues which I'm very, very lucky to be discussing today with four fantastic panellists, and I'm very, very grateful for all of your time. Um, And I'll just briefly introduce everyone. On on my far right uh, is DT Vias, and DT is Chief of Business Longevity at a a consultancy, Global Bright Futures. Uh, And DT had started her career in the finance sector, um, but more recently, she's been working at Global Bright Futures, her company, on sustainable fashion, working with firms, their operations, and their supply chains in the area of sustainable fashion. Um, next to DT, uh, I have Helen Newcomb, and Helen is the founder of David J, which is a, a, a sustainable swimwear, British sustainable f- uh, swimwear company. Um, and uh, Helen, in a, in, a, in a bio, described herself as a circular economist, and I think that's a really interesting idea, the notion of the circular economy within sustainable fashion. And, uh, and Helen was the winner of the Woman of the Future Awards for Entrepreneurship in 2017. So congratulations for that, and thank you very, very much for, for coming today. Um, and I was very interested to go to your website, where, as I see, you've got swimwear, which is actually produced out of recycled nylon yards from spent and ghost fishing nets. A really interesting business model. On my left, I have Olivia Pinnock, who is a London-based fashion writer um, and also lecturer. Uh, And Olivia has been writing, amongst others, about sustainable fashion. And she's also the founder of what's known as the Fashion Debates, uh, a series of debates about a whole series of interesting issues around sustainable fashion, ethical fashion. Uh, and she's a lecturer at Norwich University of the Arts and London Metropolitan University. And finally, on my far left, we have Roger Williams. Some of you would have seen um, Roger's film last night, would have seen Roger talk. Roger's a director, uh, producer, director of photography, uh, whose work is very wide-ranging. He was executive director of Canada's Olympic Tour Relay, and more recently, he's been the um, director producer of River Blue, a fascinating documentary about the environmental impacts of global fashion. Um, and if you're interested in watching that film, we didn't have a chance to go to the to the um, to, to the to the showing last night. You can just Google River Blue movie, the R- River Blue the movie, and you'll be taken to a website where you'll have an opportunity to watch that film. I thought we could start off by thinking a bit about the nature of the problem. Um, You know, I briefly introduced it. 
Um, and I often tell my students, before we start thinking about solutions to any problem, it's important to think about the nature of the problem itself and some of its causes. Um, so my, my first question to the panel um, is, and I perhaps start with DT uh, on this and, and move across the panel, is why isn't the mainstream fashion industry more sustainable? Um, we have plenty of evidence to suggest that mainstream fashion is very, very energy-intensive, water-intensive, chemical-intensive. So why, why do we have a fashion industry which is very environment-intensive? Um, <clears throat> thank you, Richard. Um, I guess it, there's, a, there's a wide range of reasons, and it's, it's not as simple as, as saying it's the fashion industry um, that has created it. It's something, if you, if you look at it, the one thing I, want, I will start with saying is, so far, I think the role of the consumer has been hugely underestimated and under-played sort of in, this, in this whole debate and this whole dialogue. And sustainability within business right now is still seen as, as sort of not a priority in some cases because there's competing budgets so you know companies are looking at other priorities and what they want to do in terms of how they grow their business and they see sustainable implications as being a bit too far off into the future when companies are looking at annual turnover annual annual sort of analysis and all of that so that that short term focus is is just one part of the problem but if you look at Consumers are craving newness. Consumers are craving... So it's, the consumers have, have sort of, in a way, the fashion, and the fashion brands have responded to a need that was, that was there. Um, you know, if we look at what is the fastest-growing uh, retailer in the fashion industry right now, it's not, it's not this, the small, ethical, sustainable fashion brands. I wish that was the case. The fastest-growing last year was... Um, all the fast fashion online retailers, so like Boohoo.com and Pretty Little Thing or Pretty Young Thing that they own. And these are companies that cater to the 18 to 25-year-olds who literally need to have a new outfit every weekend. And so it's a huge problem and it's a huge scale. And to, and to continue to, to meet that need, there's only so many ways that you can produce that volume of clothing without it impacting on, on the environment or social uh, conditions. And if you're buying a dress for £20, as a consumer, you cannot, you cannot sort of ignore the fact that, or question where does this come from and where, where are my clothes coming from. And we live in, a, in, a, in an age where there is no excuse to say, I don't know because all you need to do is go onto Google and you can find out exactly where your clothes are made. And if you want to know, you can find out. So there's no excuse. And then, and then just the other point I want to make is the real consumers are not engaged in this debate. They don't really care about sustainability. So I'll just use a small example. Snapchat, for example, uh, I think we talked about it yesterday. Um, Kylie, or so one of the Kardashians, tweeted, and Snapchat's value went down one billion pounds in one day because of a chat. And those are the people, the following the Kardashians or whoever they are, that are the real consumers of this of this world, who are creating the demand. When Rana Plaza happened, I don't know of any single, I don't know of any business that that was impacted. In fact, Primark, and I only mentioned Primark not because I think Primark was the main culprit. I think it's it's a systemic issue. Three months after the Rana Plaza, Primark sales went up 20%. And where does that money come from? It's the consumers. And I think 
So there's, historically, there's been this focus on focusing on the businesses and focusing on investors who have a short-term focus, and the consumer has been left out of the debate. And I guess for me, it's, I, I think that's very much a big part of that equation, and that needs to be also addressed. Helen? Yeah, I mean, I, I complete, completely agree. I mean, I think we live in a society where more is is always demanded you know we seem to think that doing the same as you did last year is not enough and we always need more you know the profits the companies have to be growing otherwise they're going downhill and you can't get more without sacrificing something you know unless we're innovating at the speed at which we want to grow you are always going to have additional costs um and i think we as consumers particularly need to recognize there is a cost of producing an item of clothing. And if that cost is not reflected in the amount you're paying your retailer, it is coming out somewhere else. It's either being felt by the environment, it's being felt by certain workers. There is a cost. And I think um, you know, we have to be really conscious about like Dieter says, you know, you, you can find out. It's so easy, it's such a transparent world now where things come from. Um, where they're made, how they're being made. And I think we need to accept that there's a cost. If I want to buy a new pair of jeans, if I want a new piece of clothing, there is a cost somewhere, and either I'm bearing it or, you know, someone down the line is. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's not necessarily that young people don't care. It's that up until this point they haven't known about it. Um, And I think educating consumers is a really um, um, big part of it because why we've got to where we are now has largely been commercially driven, like the commercial opportunity of being able to get more clothing out there, to be able to say to consumers that we will have new clothing in our store every single week, so you can come in weekly and find something <coughs> different. And you can buy that for just £20 pounds, um, or, you know, or, or whatever. Um, so I think it's come from, you know, and that's been hugely um, profitable, as we know, you know, the owner of Inditex, um, who owned Zara, Mango, Massimo Dutti, he was very briefly, before Bill Gates pipped him to it again, the richest man in the world um, last year. Um, so it's a hugely profitable model, even though it feels like when you're spending five, ten pounds on a t-shirt or whatever, how can anyone make any money from that? And they're making a lot of money from that. Um, but I think also why it hasn't been tackled so much is because fashion is such a global industry um, you know one item of clothing even though it might say on the label made in Bangladesh or made in the UK or whatever actually it's had components from all around the world going into it you know from the people who grew the cotton to the people who made the zips to the people who stitched the label in it to the people who actually compiled um, the garment um, so it's it's a very complex issue um, to go and say, okay, if we want to do things better and more sustainably and ethically, you're then competing with different laws, employment laws, environment laws across so many different countries, and that becomes really, really difficult to coordinate. Yeah, and from my perspective, again, the the consumer certainly... um, their demand for all this new clothing, that's obvious, it's very obvious, but... Why is there that demand from those people? And I think it comes back to the marketing of these large companies. They create this model, 
so that younger individuals want and think they need new clothing every week and need to spend that 20 pounds. So I really believe, uh, again, it's the large companies with the large marketing budgets that can advertise worldwide that have actually created this demand and and really, um, you know, they do it in nice, sexy ways of commercials and all kinds of online campaigns. And uh, I think they're they're a part of the problem as well. So I think I think a lot of people have a role to play. I think even government has a role to play. Consumers have a role to play, and certainly manufacturers have a role to play as well. Thank you very much. So that's something about the, the nature of the, the problem. How 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 have the mainstream parts of the of the sector so far responded to this problem? How would you characterise the response? Is it is it very much incremental business as usual? DC. Um. How has the mainstream responded in terms of the actual companies themselves? Yeah. Well, I think that a lot of the large companies are actually trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, you only have to look at H&M's Conscious Collection, which they've introduced. Um, Nike doing a lot of stuff around their um, uh, circular economy and taking back their, their shoes and recreating. So I think a lot of the large companies are doing are doing a lot and they are trying to do the right thing. But it's such a deep and rooted and, and wide issue. And these companies are actually, you know, a lot of them are too big. So even, even H&M, if they were to take back and recycle all their clothing, they can't physically, to get to that stage of, they're just, there's such a large volume of textiles being produced. So even if they, they adopt, a, you know, will take back clothes and recycle them, there, there isn't the capacity to do it sustainably so I think that's the issue, is that it's just too big to, to, um, for them to solve and overnight. And it's such a huge scale issue, and scale is it takes time to transition into a, into a more sustainable model. It can be done if the will is there and the leadership is there, and in some cases the leaders cert- certainly are trying to set the way to change the industry, but there are equally as many players that are not doing anything. So um, I think the industry is realizing that there's a problem and they need to respond, and they are doing stuff, but it's, um, it's a big challenge because it's just such a huge scale, and, and consumers are not actually... I, I personally, I don't think that consumers are incentivizing the big players to, to actually do that, and neither are investors. So, Helen, Helen you work in the... Uh, your, your business is in the swimwear. swimwear. Um, how, do, how do you see some of the, um, some, some, some of the, the firms in the swimwear industry? What, what is their response uh, to this sustainability challenge? I'm, I mean, I have quite a, a probably more extreme view on it. I don't think they want it enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, mean, I think if their base costs increase tenfold overnight, I think you'd see change a lot quicker than you've, you've seen mm-hmm. with this issue. It's not high enough up the agenda. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of great ideas, and there is a lot of really good thinking out there and really interesting innovation, but you know, it's not even just the fashion industry. You see it with plastic packaging. You know, if the cost of that increased, seriously, you know, tenfold overnight, we would not see it on our shelves tomorrow. You know, it, it would happen a lot quicker, and they're just not feeling the impact of that cost. You know, whether it's consumers are not demanding that they, you know, I want ethical products, I want to buy them, I want to pick that product over this product, they will quickly change. You know, they'll start supplying different products according to what people are demanding, you know, or if they're being penalised, whether it, you know, affects their cost line. I just don't think we want it enough. 
Okay, that's interesting. Olivia, um, I mean, you, you work in this sort of fashion, you write a lot about the fashion industry. Why, why don't you think some of those mainstream players aren't doing more? Is it, is it because of the lack of demand? Um, or is it just the complexity of the task or a combination of these factors? Um, definitely a combination of them. Um, I think, you know, change when you're running a business at the, the scale that these businesses are, and that inevitably um, um, takes, takes a lot to do, and it takes time, it takes a bit of research beforehand. Um, and I think for me, ultimately, the, the biggest thing that needs to change in order to have a real impact is the sheer volume of stuff. <laughs> you know, like we can have amazing innovative Fabrics. We can have fair trade policies in place, but if we're still consuming the same amount, like that's what's putting the pressure on the labour force and the garment workers. That's what's putting the pressure on the environment. That's what you know, pushing, uh, you know, putting the pressure on how much we get rid of our clothing and where that ends up and things like that. Um, and that ultimately means an entire change of the <coughs> business model, yeah. a fast fashion business model. <sighs> as much as you can have your, your conscious collection and, you know, all those sorts of things is, is um, not going to be sustainable. Um, so, when, so when you sit down and uh, talk to people about, right, you need to change your entire business model, that's never going to be popular, is it? <laughs> so so Helen, Helen talked about um, the, 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 the sort of fashion, fashion retailers not, not really feeling it. What, what sense do you get, Roger, in researching... And uh, and uh, and uh, sort of filming for for River Blue and interviewing all these interesting characters. What do you think the industry response is? Do, are are they feeling it, or and how is that being felt? Um, I'll give you a direct example because I've been asked to do screenings with some large brands and private screenings, so I'm glad to do that. And those are always led by the sustainability teams in these large brands. And what I found most interesting, and they've had a wide cross-section from supply chain people to marketing people to upper management. And at the end of the film, the first people to leave the room and won't stay for the Q&A are the upper management. So I find that troubling. Because, and, and I've had conversations with sustainability people <clears throat> who basically say, that's exactly what we bump into all the time. And I get it because if you're a large brand and, uh, you know, you have to look out for shareholder value. And if they make large changes, then that could affect their job and they might get fired. So I think that's a concern as well. So I think a lot of people in those large brands are all doing the right thing. And I'm glad that they're in those positions fighting the good fight. Um, But I know that they bump up, you know, into that all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a problem as well. And I think those, you know... If one of those large brands, or a few of them, actually made real big change and went back to their investors and say, you know what, we're going to go over this way, I think those people are going to survive and do very, very well. Because I think there is a demand, but people don't even know that they want what they want yet. I think a really nice example of that is the Caring Group, Mm. um, actually, who, again, still far from being perfect, but they are really one of the the leaders in the luxury section when it comes to sustainability. And again, that was a shift that happened from upper management, um, where it was largely Stella McCartney and her brand being, you know, a lifelong vegan animal lover and environment lover. 
um, and she was always trying to practice that in her business and um, you know and then being owned by the caring group um, who also owned Gucci and Puma and Alexander McQueen and a lot of those people um, and through Stella's conversations with you know the CEOs at caring then said this is something we really need to take seriously and they did and once she managed to convince them then it kind of spread out across the group and mm-hmm. A more positive story. <laughs> so, so one really fascinating thing which, from the film last night, you almost started it talking about the social story, you know, so what we often think about some of the, the labour practices in the industry, uh, wages, child labour, etc. And uh, did, did you get a sense that some of these social issues have crowded out the environment issues? And I'm the first one to uh, recognise that social and environment issues often go hand in hand. But has that, do you think that's a feature of the, of the sector where so far the social has has been the, the priority for the firms rather than the environmental? Um, I don't think it's a case of that it's been a priority. I think there's just a lack of understanding because in, in the fashion sector, the environmental impacts are not happening. They're happening at the, in the first, second, third, and further down in the supply chain. And there's, So the, the companies are not necessarily able to directly attribute that impact to their operations, whereas on the social side, it's a little bit more obvious and you only have to go and go into your factories that are manufacturing um, to your your products to see the impacts whereas the environmental is is a bit less tangible so I think it's just it's more to do with lack of understanding but you know obviously there is more and more awareness with the films that we've seen and v- various other things but the other the other issue is the companies don't make that connection to their longer term business viability is that in, they depend on the environment. So if you look at the root of where the clothes are made from, they're made from cotton, flax, whatever the case is, which are thirsty crops, they need land, and most of them are often grown in drought regions where there's not enough water. So it will down the, soon, sooner rather than later affect their bottom line. So I think that environmental side will quickly, and it, it is already becoming a quick issue for them, but I think up until recently it's just, it's just been ignored because they haven't really made that connection to to it being part of their business and, and it being um, something that their business depends on or even creates. So. Okay, very interesting. Anyone else want to speak on that issue about the social and environmental? Well, from a filmmaking point of view, um, I know the social side had certainly been talked about with Rana Plaza and certain other situations, but when I looked at it, um, I went at it more from the water angle because water doesn't have a voice. And I figured, you know what, I saw, the, saw some of the problems, and uh, again, how the film actually started was, uh, from my research, we came across this blue-black stain coming out of a river in China and going into the ocean, and I went, what's that about? And so in further investigation, we found out it really had to do with blue jeans, and that's something that is an iconic product that almost all of us have a pair of, and I went, okay, now there's a story. And it has to do with water, and it has to do with environment, and it has to do with social as well. So it kind of encompasses everything. But you know, there, and when I really looked at and did the research, there was so little reporting, I mean almost none, when it came down to the pollution side of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I figured that's a good story for us to tell. It was, it, yeah, it was something that I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. Like, why has this been such a quiet issue? Um, And, um, you know, it was through watching River Blue, actually, that I, again, started to realise that, um, you know, there's been no 
no headline incidences, like, you know, other than Rana Plaza, uh, which obviously did spark a lot of change and a lot of awareness and um, these sorts of things. But, you know, when you think that the fashion industry is the second most polluting industry in the world after oil, you think about oil, you think about oil spills, you think about, you know, the oil companies are always in the press about these awful incidences. Whereas with fashion, it's just, been, you know, there's not been these major one big crisis it's just been a slowly 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 constantly all the time mm-hmm. um you know and we need films like yours and we need media coverage and those sorts of things um to really start change can i add i mean we do talk and i think we have a tendency in these sessions to talk a lot about the negatives and minimizing the negatives and there are there are some real both social and environmental positives that can be gained um you know Working with, so I work with Aquafil in Italy who collect waste fishing nets and regenerate this waste nylon into um, raw new nylon that can then be turned into, into my swimsuits. And you know, that's a positive environmental impact. And so we're always talking about sort of minimizing the negative side, but actually there's a real beauty in some of the products we create. And if we only kind of sought to understand the stories and the people behind them and the materials, you know, do you even know what's in the clothes you're buying and or the, you know, the toothbrush you use? And there are some beautiful stories to the products we create in this world. And I think we're not aware of them enough and we don't pay enough attention to it. But if we start to value and really kind of listen and look for the you know the beauty in what we create i think we we would naturally start looking away from the negative side and start really valuing the positive impacts as well so i think that's a really important point and uh, it's it's a point that which also came out of of your film roger last night is about some of these in a sense interesting new uh firms which are emerging um, which are at the core of their business strategy is sustainable fashion, sustainability. Uh, it's at the heart of what they do. It's a very, very important part of their values and, and their practice, as it were. Um, and we saw clearly last night from the, from the documentary there was a brand called Ital Denim, but we've also got off, Helen from, um, from David J. We've got a similar, similar business. Sustainability is really at the core of this. Um, it, just, just speaking as an academic, um, you know, people discussing this would often say, well, these are the ethical minnows. These are the ethical minnows in a, in a very, very big pond. Um, and, and the question is, how, you know, how can we move from these, these kind of niche providers to, to upscaling these models? Is it possible to do that upscaling? Um, and perhaps I'll start with you, Helen. You've, yeah. You're working in this, in yeah. this kind of Well, niche. I suppose I, I always fight the title of being a sustainable entrepreneur because yeah. I'm an entrepreneur. I mean, that's, that's what I see myself as, and Davy J is a business. It's a limited company. Um, you know, it's, we're not this sort of subset that, you know, the normal industry is, is to be sort of evil and create all this damaging environment, and then there are these ones on the side that do nice things. You know, I, do, I, don't, I don't believe in that. I'm a, you know, a market-driven economist. I believe that there is the power to create good um, and that that shouldn't be necessarily a kind of mm. add-on to what you create um, so it, I it's I wouldn't run a business any other way is how I see it with running David J I just you know looking at the supply chain and looking at what goes into our products I just wouldn't do it any other way um, and I think we have to shift our shift our thinking and shift our expectations as consumers to 
that's what we demand of our product. You know, if you're going to create something, be responsible for what happens to it. You know, if you create a product, do you know what happens to it at the end of its life? Is it going to go in the landfill? Can it be recycled? Can it be taken apart? Can it be repaired? You know, if you create it, be responsible for it. And I just, I, I just think that's the way we should be moving. So, TG, at Global Bright Futures, you work a lot in sustainable, uh, sustainable fashion. Um, how do you see this question about how can we upscale some of these, these wonderful sort of stories we see of people doing these wonderful things, trying new, new production, production practices, new materials, etc.? Can we, can we think about upscaling this, these models? Well, I think we need to because otherwise we're all sort of, I think, you know, I completely agree with Helen. It's, it's, it is the bigger brands that are actually creating this at scale that need to do it. And I think we can upscale and, and all it takes is, is the commitment and, and the decision from leadership to say, yes, this is the type of business we want to be and, and just take steps to make that happen. You know, you can start with one product range which is what, you know, a lot of times with a lot of conversations we have with companies is because they don't really know what to do and they see this as big, as this big overwhelming task. And it doesn't have to be. You just break it down into simple steps. You just look at, okay, what are my products? What am I selling? Where do they come from? Let's do it one step at a time, which is what Puma did, you know, when they first started reporting on their, on their uh, environmental P&L and all of that. And then they slowly... You know, it, 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 it can happen and it needs to happen at scale and it is the big businesses that need to change. Um, so I think, I th- and you know, I mean, as us human beings, we've evolved, look at where we are. It's, of course, it can, anything is possible. We just need to decide that that's what we want to do and we just make it happen. So, and the technologies are there. We've seen some examples yesterday. There's the, you know, I mean, we create so much waste and that waste is a beautiful resource and and you know we can we can take that and turn it into beautiful clothes um so the resources are there the technologies there i think we just need to decide that's what that's what we want to do and make it happen olivia on on this question about you know we obviously got this we've got this ethical part of the market and how do we bridge this with the kind of mainstream part of the market how do you see this challenge um well i think for, for the mainstream um, brands, I think there are incentives to going sustainable. Um, you know, certainly when it comes to minimising your waste <laughs> um, in your production, isn't that something that every company should be aiming for? Makes you know makes you um, a better business, um, potentially even more profitable, yeah. um, things like that. Um, I am really excited about the smaller brands that are are coming through, and I think they have a real opportunity. Um, talking from a marketing perspective, because that's kind of my area as well, um, to tell great stories. And I think, you know, the current, uh, the current fashion industry, um, you have to be able to tell stories about your brand. Now with social media and everybody having their own website and, you know, customer magazines being a real um, rising area, I think there are a lot of brands out there, like big mainstream brands, who are actually struggling to tell a story because they don't really have much of one. Um, you know, I think particularly in sort of, you know, the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of people who just had a lot of money and went, ah, fashion, there's a lot of money in that. Oh, I'll just start a brand because I've got some money. And, you know, and like, what kind of backstory is that in comparison to, you know, something like a heritage brand or a brand like Helen's brand, which is, you know, like... Mm cleaning up the sea and for something that you wear to go in the sea like isn't that a beautiful correlation like doesn't that make a brand interesting and engaging and something that you want to own and um 
Do you think that that's something that consumers want and are interested in? They're being, um, they're less brand loyal than they ever used to be. They're, you know, dividing their spend between companies. They're discovering smaller brands through social media, um, you know, and and I think that's a great opportunity to really just create a shift in the fashion industry and kind of it's not about completely taking down these mainstream brands but spreading the spend out very interesting thank you roger i mean you the the panel or the discussion last night ended up about um sam asking you whether you're going to make a sort of river blue too and lots of people have been writing to you were saying talking about these success stories and these really innovative models um what what do you take from this you see lots of this activity out there um and how, do, you, do you think that activity can be upscaled? I do think the activity can be upscaled. Um, Luigi Caccia from Mattel Denim, uh, he was very open with myself. Anyways, he said, you know, we've taken all these chemicals out of our supply chain and by, you know, using Kitazan and, and different technologies, he's also working in, in other new waste materials to create dyes and, and different things. So he's, a very, he's very much an innovator. And he said, hey, anyone that wants to learn more, I'm, I'm willing to share. I'll, I'll talk to any, any brand about what I'm doing. So I think having kind of a more open source policy and, and having discussions amongst the brands about, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I don't know if that takes place. I mean, I'm not in the fashion industry. I'm not an insider by any means. In fact, I think I'm very much an outsider. Um, but I'm trying to bring a consumer kind of perspective to it as well because I don't know how, how things are made and I don't know really where things are made, although I've been to a lot of those places, obviously. Uh, I still don't understand all of the supply chain dynamics that go into making a piece of clothing. Um, but I think if there's more open source and dialogue and engaging with the consumer, like through social media and, and different stories and positives. Um, because one of the things I found when we started this film, if I typed on Google sustainable fashion, there really wasn't much there. And that was only a few years ago. So it's growing quickly. And I think the consumer has is really changing that. And and I think it'll become a, a big wave, as it, as it were. And people are going to really demand change and it'll happen it just will happen and just i just want to say on the comment on the open source i mean g-star has just come out with the most sustainable gene ever and and their technology and they, they partnered with uh, the cradle to cradle institute that is fully open source it is there for every brand to go in and have a look to see how they made the denim and and their intention is to share their knowledge and their know-how to push the fashion industry forward. So it is, and that was only last week. So it is starting to happen. And so I think there is no excuse because, you know, all the information and the know-how and it's there if you want it. So it's just a matter of wanting it badly enough. So is there there a fundamental tension between the demands of consumers for cheap clothing and uh, and sustainable fashion? Um, I can, can... can, can we resolve this tension? Is it, is it our fashion retailers, producers, are capable of resolving this tension? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is. There's a, my, you know, my pieces can't retail any lower than they are. You know, if you want to buy a £30 bikini on the high street, I cannot produce that with the same supply chain I have. I just can't make that happen. And I would not be able to scale and work through retailers at those margin levels. It's just not possible for me um, with the decisions I've made about where my supply chain is. So 
there, you know, there's a compromise somewhere. Yes, there are, you know, some some of the brands out there are charging a lot of money and making a lot of that money just for shareholders' pockets. Yeah. It's not, you know, just about the supply chain. But ultimately, you you have to accept you can't um, pay, you know, really small amounts and get an ethical, sustainable product. It takes time. It takes, you know, a certain level of money and and a lot of hard work and and choices to to make that supply chain ethical and all of that comes at a certain price yeah i mean while i feel that consumers have a massive role to play um and they should feel empowered that they can um kind of cause change um i also feel like it's very important to be sympathetic to consumers they didn't ask for this (laughs) you know they were just they were just handed a like hey um you can buy clothing at this affordable price um and you know so we can't really turn around and be like oh i'm sorry we gave you this thing and now we're going to shame you for buying them (laughs) um and also i think there is um uh, a bit of a dialogue around sustainable fashion and whether it's a also very middle class problem and you know what do we do about people who are buying children's clothing and they don't have a huge income and those sorts of things but and I think it's really important to engage those consumers as well because actually um, cheap fast fashion is a false economy and the quality of our clothing has gone down Um, and you know again so again buy cheap buy twice (laughs) Uh, which isn't helpful for people who don't have the money to uh, spend on a lot um, and also just just for people like well hang on how am I you know you've given me this taste and this appetite for being able to wear a different outfit out every weekend and now you're suddenly saying I can't have it um, but I do think there are solutions for that as well uh, me personally I'm a big fan of vintage clothing um, and I think that's a great way to do things more sustainably um, I also think um, also from a business perspective um, rental fashion is becoming um, more popular and you know that's a great thing because I can't afford to buy an Alexander McQueen dress but I can afford to rent one and wouldn't that be nice to you know go to my friend's wedding in the summer in a dress that I wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise and then give it back to somebody else who can then go wear it you know like there are solutions that are you know more consumer friendly and meet consumers where they are at and what they enjoy um you know that are that are more affordable that are still fun you can still enjoy fashion um without having to be like oh gosh I now have to spend three times as much on clothing that I um you know and I'm only going to buy like a couple of times a year or whatever because sometimes that's not always possible for people it is these slow shifts and things so this raises a really interesting issue of, of consumers, and it's been a, it's been a consistent narrative uh, right from um, DT's first response about the consumer. So there becomes a question of how do we engage the consumer? Uh, how do we inform the consumer? How do we change, shift these preferences, perhaps towards durability, quality, etc., away from the, the volume, the kind of constant purchasing of fairly low-quality items, which, which is not a consumer durable, it's consumer disposable, almost. <laughs> how do we, does anyone have any ideas about how we might go about this? Um, yeah, the Kardashians, Beyonce, all of the people that these pe- the consumers follow. And like, like I, in my first example, what happened with one tweet 
from from I, don't, I didn't even know there were six of them, but there are apparently six of them. And no disrespect, they have a lot more power than any of us in this room. I may not like or agree with their values and how they live their life, but they hold power. So how do we get these people to to tweet about some of the environmental issues about fashion? And all their followers would probably follow suit. And so I think that that that's. There's a huge role for, for some of these celebrities, uh, you know, to, to play, to kind of... They have a responsibility with their followers in terms of how they behave. But I have never seen any of them talk about anything to do with sustainability. They wear beautiful, glamorous clothes, and that's what they're... Consu- and they're the real consumers of fast fashion. Um, you know, so I think, how do we engage them in this dialogue? Do we take them on a trip to Bangladesh? I, I mean, maybe that's the solution. Um, or do we, you know, so I think that that's the real audience that we need to get to reach to, to because that's who, who these people are listening to. We do live in a world of, of influencers, don't we? I mean, you call them influencers. They literally do influence yeah. the choices you make, which is, um, which is, you know, strange in itself. And partly it's also about it's the consumers or those followers make a decision, making a decision themselves or kind of pushing, I, I want to hear about the story behind your product. I want to hear about this. And, and people, it's the two-way street, isn't it? These influencers become powerful. They are able to influence you because they have followers. Okay? And the more people follow them, the more influence they have. And, it, you know, it's a circular motion. you kind of got to break that at some point. Yeah. So, 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 Roger, do you think who's, where, where does the responsibility lie? Do you think there's a responsibility by the firms as well to, in a sense, re-educate, re-engage with their consumers to change their preferences? Yes, I do actually think, again, I, I think everybody has a role to play. I think government has a role to play. Um, I know in the U.S. they have stringent laws about importing certain chemicals and, and uh, in whatever into their country, yet they actually import them in the clothing that is being manufactured. So they are doing it in a different way. So again, I think government has a role to play. I think consumer, again, has a, has a big role to play. And, I, and also, of course, the brands do have uh, a responsibility for the product that they're making and potentially being disposed of. And, uh, and I think they do need to reinvigorate their marketing and and truly do it not in a greenwashing way but truly do it in a in a way that is truly informative of what they're doing and the steps that they're taking to move forward as well and if anyone has an idea of how i can get a kardashian to tweet about river blue (laughs) i'm all for it (laughs) don't worry i'll speak beyond samuel thank you that would work too (laughs) on this question of engaging consumers yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, absolutely. Celebrity engagement. I think um, Livia Firth at Eco Age, she has the green carpet challenge where um, she gets celebrities to wear an outfit on the red carpet, um, which has been made by um, not a sustainable brand necessarily. Usually, like um, I know Calvin Klein have been involved, um, Chopard have been involved. Um, you know, so EcoAge is a sustainable fashion consultancy. So they go into these brands and they say, hey, how could you do this in a sustainable way? And they make a bespoke outfit for a celebrity who's wearing on the red carpet. I think it's a fantastic initiative um, because, again, like you've got to be where people are listening, which is why, yeah, can we get the Kardashians involved? That would be great. But, um, yeah, I think adding adding value back into the clothing and 
um, you know, by the stories we tell with it, um, as, as I said earlier as well, um, you know, like, wouldn't it be great if, you know, when you, like, meet up with your, like, girlfriend, speaking specifically to the women, <laughs> yeah, um, but, you know, and you go, oh, I love your, I love your scarf or I love your coat or whatever, and, and you go, thanks, it was £10, <laughs> um, you know, like, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be really great if everyone was suddenly going, thanks, I got it in this, like, amazing vintage shop and it's from this designer brand that doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, this is what they did, or, you know, oh, thanks, it's made from upcycled, uh, you know, like, fishing nets or, you know, whatever that was, you know. Wouldn't it be great if we just told those stories, like, rather than going, it has pockets, guys. (laughs) Uh, You know, like, like, let's start, like, telling our friends about the things we're really excited about in our clothing. Like, thanks, here's a picture of the woman in Peru who was, you know, trained as part of her, you know, community to make this piece of jewellery or whatever. Like, you know, it's, it starts with all this influence that all of us have. That's really Thank you very, very much. I'd like to open this up to the audience now. So if you've got a question, can you please put your hand up? Um, briefly state who you are. And can we just keep the questions short and to the point if possible? Um, so I'll just start right at the front with a lady here. Hi, thank you for the very interesting talk. Uh, my name is Dina Khalifa. I'm a lecturer in fashion marketing. I just wanted to ask you uh, about how sustainable is the sustainable movement? I, I like how genuine you think this move, movement is. Because if you look at the consumer side, yes, attitudes have been changing. However, academic research have clearly shown there is a gap between attitude and behavior. Myself included, I teach about sustainability and I believe in it. However, I still go to Primark to buy socks and pajamas. And if you look into industry side, Kieran Group and LVMH has in- invested in a lot of initiatives. No Fair Movement has been going strongly now. Gucci, Tommy, Armani, and so many other big brands. However, what about leather? So is it a mere publicity stunt because everyone's talking about defer, but, but neglecting other factors, sustainability has economic side, has cultural side, apart from social and environmental, but no one seems to pay attention. So that basically poses a question as whether it's just like what's in vogue now, that everyone does it because everyone's talking about it, but do they really care? So who would like to, who'd like to weigh in on that? I can comment on that. Yeah. I, mean, I, think, I think you always get people talking about it before it actually happens, right? You always get this kind of few years of, of the chat and everyone thinks it should be an issue and is everyone else doing it and should I be? And before you really start to see actual change. I mean, I'm a bit of a, I practice what I preach. If I want to talk about creating a sustainable supply chain, I'll create a sustainable supply chain. And I suppose it's about, you know, trust. If you buy from a brand, do you trust that what they're telling you is right? Um, you know, is it just a marketing? Is it just greenwashing? Or... You know, is actually true. And what Dt said, you can look it up. You know, it, it, people people give you a lot of marketing lines. We live in a very transparent world. If you really want to know where your clothes come from, you can look it up and you can make your choices accordingly. It's, I think um, I, I I choose to be positive about it. I don't think it is just people doing it for a publicity stunt. Largely because I think when you open yourself up and say you're doing things ethically and sustainable, people love to like criticise you on that. So it's not a very good publicity stunt if that's what you're trying to do. Um, <laughs> um, and but you know maybe it's maybe it's not all the way there. And I think that's a real problem with you know calling yourself an ethical brand or a sustainable brand. Well, no one can really be 100% ethical or 100% sustainable because actually those are huge terms which mean 
a lot of things like are you an ethical brand if you have um, a fair trade policy with your garment workers but you have unpaid interns here in London working for you for six months unpaid like you know um, what does that mean and I think um, there really needs to be in terms of uh, especially for these like smaller brands who are up and coming and trying to build and trying to do things I think they need to use their language carefully um, and think about things to say like what are they doing like if you put a kind of manifesto out there and say like this is what we do we might not be a vegan brand but we are fair trade or you know we might be using organic cotton but we um, you know aren't doing this or whatever you know um, people are always going to ethics is a very personal thing you know we all have different ideas of what's more ethical and what's more sustainable and those are really difficult to judge so especially when, especially when you're a small brand I think absolutely that that is really the way to go like own the thing you are most passionate about and that you know you can do and then just work on it from there and tweak it as you grow it and find your thing and I think we're still we're really at the forefront of all of this you know we're not very far into it we're only a few years really into sustainable even though some brands have been around a long time and, and kind of preaching that um, but I think there is a growing um, interest on all f- sides you know large brands but what I see certainly on smaller brands is there is a real um, innovation that they're that they're striving for and they want to stand out uh, amongst the bigger brands so that they can become a little bit bigger so I think there's um, I think there is a willingness I'm just I'm cautiously optimistic on some of the larger brands um, so and I hope that they truly are doing things for the right reasons I think there's also a situation of of there's so much focus on the negative and what's not happening and it's like Helen was saying you know and and uh, Olivia as well alluded to it no matter what you do you're sort of scrutinized for not having done the right thing and there are plenty of examples of people companies, uh, small and large, just carrying on and doing the sustainability thing, not as a greenwashing, but just going on doing the right things. But they don't want to talk about it because as soon as you talk about it, you get, you get criticized because you're not doing everything. You know, so they're choosing their battles and they're addressing one issue at a time. And I'll just give a quick example of an auditor that went to a factory, a, factory, a manufacturer in India to audit um, uh, the, the, the factory and turnover in, in Asia and some of these places is quite quite high because of the treatment and all of that in this factory everybody was they'd been there for a long time they'd been there for you know everybody was quite happy and you know and so the auditor asked the owner what's going on and he was a bit reluctant and he kept pushing well and he was like well why is he not answering he kept pushing and pushing well what's what what are you doing differently and he said, well, I, I, pay, I send all, uh, all my employees' kids to school, and they all get education, a good quality education. He goes, well, why are you not talking about it? He goes, well, nobody asked me. You're the first person to have come and asked me about it. And so there's this focus on what, is the wrong, what are the wrong things happening, um, because that's, that's, you know, I mean, media is driven by negative publicity. So there's loads of positive stuff, but a lot of times companies don't necessarily talk about it. So, thank you very much. Um, I, a lady at the front there, yeah, and then I'll move to the back next time. 
Hi there. Thank you all for your insights. Uh, my name is Becca. I'm an um, uh, MSc in Environmental Technology at Imperial. Um, I've just got a question about transparency, um, mainly aimed at DT and Helen. Um, at the beginning, there was um, they mentioned that it would actually be really easy for a consumer to find out where their clothes are from. They can just Google it. But I actually think from I'm a very conscious consumer myself, and I really don't think I'd be able to find out where my clothes are from. I think supply chains are just so out of control, especially in those large multinational businesses and I was wondering whose responsibility is it to um, show where those clothes have been and what strategies can larger companies use to help make their consumer understand because most consumers really don't care at the moment thank you good question (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah very good question I think it's it is everybody's responsibility and in order to find out where the clothes come from you know you can just ask the companies and they will companies have such huge supply chains right now um, and they do, you're right in that in the one hand they don't know where the clothes are directly coming from but at the end of it we know that they're all being manufactured in China India Bangladesh and all of that so you you know and there are enough emerging sustainable and ethical brands that you can you can find out who's doing something differently um, and companies are starting you know uh, CNA have listed a big list of all of their suppliers on their website now that's actually not very helpful because you don't just because there's transparency it's not necessarily you still want to know how are they made? What kind of conditions have you have you made them in? What are the what are the terms? So you're you're absolutely right in that it's not as you know I'm, I I know what I said. You can find out you can, from Google and you can, but it's about for me it's about consumers actually choosing how they spend their money. So it's but by making that choice to not give that brand your money because you know that there isn't. There isn't um, the right sort of um, ethics and transparency in place, and, and that's where you you know consumers have the power to just not spend money in a company where you don't know where it's coming from. We do. I mean, we we have a tendency. It, this is a big industry, right? You got, and they're very different levels of scale. So I'm right at one other end. Okay, so I know. I mean, I honestly know down to the name of the person that sews each piece of material. Um, because I am at that scale, I, I can be at that level. And if anyone, you know, wanted to know, could drop me an email and I would happily share that information. And, you know, I'm very happy to share, you know, all of their levels. I appreciate, you know, as soon as you start moving up the scale, <laughs> that becomes a little more difficult. Um, but like Dee says, you know, it's, it's, it's a choice. If, if a, Often if, if people don't want to give you information, they might have something to hide. I mean, if it's logistically very difficult to find that information fair, but if you ask and you don't get an answer, that is quite often because mm. you, you may not want the answer you're going to get. Um, I think there are, there are movements like Fashion Revolution is doing a, a load and a load of brands have come on board with that, talking, you know, taking pictures and showing and talking about the supply chain. And it's not just about one factory at one end but you know where does the clips come from the rubber the you know every little element that goes into making a piece um you know who transports it which retailers are selling it and there are some it's not all negative there are some beautiful stories to be told and if you follow fashion revolution it's it's actually a really inspiring period um to look at all the great stories and the great people involved in making a product um so i don't don't know if that helps (laughs) i um 
I disagree slightly that people won't give you an answer just because they're worried that it's going to expose corruption or whatever. Um, I think, you know, from their business perspective, um, it's either they they don't want their competitors to know where they're manufacturing so that they don't go steal their supplier. Um, and or um, in the case of particularly in the luxury industry, they kind of want to tell the stories of the, you know, like the petit man in the atelier, like hand sewing and everything, when actually that's only a really small percentage of their very, very high-end top pieces. Um, whereas, you know, for most of the big luxury brands, whenever they produce a T-shirt or something very, very simple, that's often made in China or, you know, whatever as well. So they don't want people to know that actually some of the stuff is being made in the same factories as high street um, places um, because they need to protect their brand image. That's why it's such a difficult issue and that's why a lot of people don't want to disclose it. Um, But definitely we need to put a lot more pressure on and go like, that's not good enough anymore because we know of this corruption that's happening um, because, you know, you need to be held accountable for your supply chain. Um, So I think, again, exactly what Fashion Revolution do um, is really important. They also publish a transparency index every single year for Fashion Revolution Week. Um, and, and basically what they've done with that is they've gone around loads of the big main brands and asked them, you know, can you tell us where your stuff is being made? Um, and then they publish it according to not who was, you know, who had the most glowing report on their, um, their supply chain, but just how willing were they to share that information. And that's a big start to start putting pressure on them um, to say you know, like, you need to disclose these things. And once you disclose them, then we can go in there and, and solve the problems. Um, the other thing I would like to see changed is um, on the clothing labels. When they say, like, made in China, made in Bangladesh, like, it means squat. <laughs> um, you only have to have, you know, it might be that the finishing touches were done somewhere in order to be claimed that it was made in Italy or um, whatever. Um, I think it's, again, only about 10% of the actual um, sort of manufacturing side of a garment that you can then claim that it was made in a certain country and also just because something was made in China or made in India doesn't necessarily mean it was made in poor conditions um, and I think what's been a, a bad side of it is that like, now we're a bit more aware of these things people are boycotting made in China or you know made in Bangladesh or um, you know whatever and actually that's not helpful either because if we take away business from a load of people who need the work um, you know then that also causes major problems there as well so I would like to see something changed in terms of that Um, you know made in name the factory rather than name the country like it means an awful lot more and just one thing to add to that just because and if if a label says it's made in the EU or made in the UK you cannot just assume that it's made with ethics and sustainability behind it. Consumers still need to ask the same questions and they still need to make the same demands from their companies to know how is it made because I challenge anybody to go to a manufacturing company in in manufacturer in Leicester and you will be quite surprised at what you find. Really interesting point. Other questions? Take the, the lady, uh, the, yeah, with the, with the, I think it's uh, slightly like colorblind, so I'm not, I can't really point out okay. what you're wearing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Juliana. I'm a postgraduate student in fashion management. Um, I would like to address a question more on the supply chain and the production issue. Um, as it's a really global uh, industry and um, 
really influenced. Uh, a lot of the of the production is made in underdeveloped countries that depend on this industry to uh, to survive. Even though they're not fairly paid, uh, they rather have something that not having anything. I would like to know how fashion companies, uh, mainly the big ones, could address this issue and make a change without uh, compromising uh, these underdeveloped countries that really rely on this industry to, to have something. Thank you. Um, so I, I can... Um, so it is... Um, The fashion industry, so the balance of power is, is sort of shifting. And yes, the, the fashion industries, if they don't change their ways and, and in terms of having the transparency of their payment terms, and, you know, there's a huge responsibility. So th these factories, the, th the fashion industry employs millions of people across the world, and most of them are women. And so, yes, that comes with a sense of responsibility of how you, how you manage that. And so you can't just, sh you know, shift things. Um, you need to work with them. And also for companies, it's about if you want to stay relevant in the longer term, you need to ensure that your suppliers are going to be there with you in the longer term because otherwise you don't really have a business, you don't have a product. And the balance of power is really shifting now. I mean, anybody just needs to go to Asia to know that Asia is the big superpower now. I mean, last year, Asian... Consumer con um, purchases in Asia exceeded the West for the first time. So the, the good factories in China are now tar starting to focus more on local emerging brands that serve the Asian market. They're, they're, you know, so if the Western brands don't change their ways, they don't start to see their suppliers and their factories as partners who they need to treat fairly and they need to pay good wages to keep them happy. Turnover in, in China, uh, um, in the textile sector, is 60% to 70% because the, the people there would much rather go and work in IT or other sectors where they get better treatment, better pay. So, so there is, it, it needs to become a thing of it's a partnership and it's a relationship and it's, they depend on each other. So... You know, if they want to stay viable in the longer term, they will need to change. And it is, it is slowly, slowly happening. It's not happening as fast as we like. And companies like Everlane are a great example where they, they're very, very transparent about how their profit is distributed. So it's about making sure that profit is fairly and equally distributed at every stage in the supply chain because ultimately you depend on them to, for your business to survive. And if you're going to continue exploiting them, they, it will shift and it will move on to something else. They'll move on to other industries. So, you know, it, it's just a, it's business common sense, which unfortunately is not really seen as, as, as that. Anybody else would like to take that? Let's take another question then. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, right front here. Hi, thank you very much for coming. I'm a master's student here in um, environmental policy and regulation, and I have two questions. One is for, uh, probably for DT, um, related to your clients and their investors. My understanding is the large investors, so the large asset owners, actually are aware of a lot of issues around sustainability, such as water use, and I, would, and I also think they are interested in companies being more um, conscious, ethical, sustainable. So my question for you would be, is um, if your clients have engaged with their large shareholders to when they're not sure about if they can change their practices or if it's too overwhelming, have they tried to engage with them to 
maybe feel more confident or feel more secure that they do have support from shareholders. And then the other just general question I had was kind of in response to what Olivia was saying about um, the labels. I think that, although I do appreciate that we can obviously research and try to make sure we're buying consciously, I think a lot of us use the labeling as shortcuts to try to be responsible. And so I suppose, do you have any recommendations for us as to how we can do that reasonably. When we go shopping, we look. I try to buy locally as much as I can, and you know, I try to buy here, and I don't know what the conditions are all the time. So, you know, is there is it a reasonable shortcut to do that? Do you have any other recommendations, or should I just probably go research first and then buy? It's a general question. <laughs> so let's let's start with the um, so asset owner kind of ESG kind of story. Yeah. So yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, the investors are increasingly looking at companies' um, non-financial performance, looking at social, environmental, and all of that. Um, and majority of them do look at it, but they don't look at it consistently. And I, I would say, well, in fact, not I would say. There's been research done. So of the ones that that do look at environmental and social governance and issues, only half of them look at it consistently in how they analyze companies, and then. The ones that do, you've got so many issues. So what what do they focus on? They focus on um, gender diversity. They focus on on, uh, pay. They focus on, on, you know, so when it comes to environmental issues and social issues, yes, they are aware. And but in the fashion sector in particular, a lot of the environmental stuff happens quite further down the supply chain. And it happens... um, it doesn't, and even the social issues. So the fashion industry, you know, investors need quantifiable, comparable data. That's and and there's a lack of that, especially when it comes to non-direct impacts. And unfortunately, in, in the fashion industry, majority of the impacts happen at the consumption stage, at the end of life, or at the production. And so for, for investors, it's it's it is a dilemma. Um, and last year, in 2015, only, only, and this is of the ones that are actually actively engaged in environmental, social governance issues, I, it was about 12% that filed shareholder resolutions that related to environmental issues. So, you know, so it's about them choosing, picking their battles, and they choose what they, what, what they want to focus on. And right now, most of the fashion industries, like I mentioned earlier, are not financially being impacted in their in their sales and their profits. By so the the investment community doesn't pay as much attention to it as long as you know the Inditex Group um, and H and M's. They had twenty over twenty billion in, in sales last year, and that is only growing. They suffered some of them last year, but you know that whole industry is still growing. So I, th- you know, so the investors are basically there to to have a sh- return for their shareholders. Um, but tying, making that direct link financially and having that impacted to, to the companies, is, is, we're way off of that. So, and we need better data. We need better quantifiable data. And there are companies that do that, but it's, it's not, you know, I mean, none of the, none of the uh, manufacturers, uh, the pollutions that we saw in River Blue, none of that will be directly attributed to, to a company's financial performance. They're sort of, you know, we're in LSE. These are all um, economic terms, these negative externalities um, but that are not being internalized 
by by anybody at this stage because because this, it's a systemic problem. It's not just an investor. It's, it's a wide systemic issue, and it's the system that needs to change because the system is right now the company is there to make a profit, and that's their primary purpose. But there is a fiduciary duty to have to – you need to earn money, yes, of course, and money profit in itself is not a bad thing, but that needs to happen. You need to earn money in a responsible way. But unfortunately, right now, the system is only looking at the financial profit of it. And, and these costs will happen, but they will happen at some point in the future. You know, at some point in the future, a company will suffer for the consequences. And at some point, the, the cheap fashion will not be possible and consumers will have to pay more. Right now, there is a choice of the paying a little bit more for a, for a small ethical brand, but there is the choice of buying something very cheaply. And there will come a time when that will not be a choice, and, but it will be a bit too late to then actually factor that in. So that's a, that's a big, big problem. Um, it is happening, but it's just you know, the right data and the right information isn't, isn't there. On to the labelling issue. How, how do we have we how we use shortcut cues? Uh, Shopping tips. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, um, I think, as I said, ethics is a very personal issue, and you kind of have to like pick your battles a bit, um, or um, you know, uh, decide decide what you care about, or the multitude of issues that you care about. Um, there are some um, sort of regulating bodies that offer like trademarks so fair trade association they will offer a fair trade symbol for um for cotton that is fair trade grown um and also as of a couple of years ago they started doing it for the manufacturing process as well so you can uh, look at and they will have a list of uh, their uh people who have the symbol on their website um and um that also applies to jewelry as well they have a fair trade certificate for gold um uh, there's also things like uh, positive luxury, um, which uh, looks specifically at uh, luxury fashion, and they look at all sorts of things like you kind of have to meet like a minimum amount of um, requirements. So it might it's not just whether it's sort of um, fairly produced and less environmental impact, but they also look at things like you know your workforce in the UK. Are you paying your interns? Are you you know doing um, how? What's your office uh, like in terms of how you're being sustainable there? And, and they look at those sorts of things. And um, there's also the Soil Association. Um, you help with. Uh, uh, sort of fabric growing um, growing fabrics it's a nice idea isn't it um, <laughs> um, and Peter as well if you're into um, being in fashion and stuff um, they offer certification that is not to say that there are other brands who don't have those certificates um, because they're very expensive to get and you have to do a lot to get them so it can be a difficult issue for smaller brands like they can't afford to get those stamps but again those are quite good <laughs> shortcuts <laughs> if you like like cheat sheets um, kind of thing, and, and there are some high street brands as well who have like fair trade cotton um, garments and things that have the symbol, uh, things like that. That's quite helpful. Um, going into stores and just asking them about it, you'll probably be met with a sales assistant who's like, "Sorry, this is my second day." Um, <laughs> but you know, but it is good to go in and ask because either you're going to get a positive answer and great, um, or you know, hopefully you kind of hope that that puts a bit of pressure. Um, you know, I've spoken to a few friends um, who work in retail, and they say we get people coming in asking where our clothes is made from, what is our fur policy, things like that. 
Um, and we have to report that back to our managers because if they're standing there like, I don't know the answer, um, then, you know, that's an issue for them. Um, so it's a good way to also put, um, use your voice to kind of put pressure on companies and things. But um, in general, I think it takes a bit of researching and looking around. And again, thinking I had a question come up at like a, another panel where someone said, you know, oh, when they have a statement on their website that says we comply with the Modern Slavery Act and, you know, by international laws and stuff, you know, how much can we trust those? And I said, well, the fact that you can reel off a bit of a script to me right now says that they're probably not doing much. <laughs> um, but, you know, but if they are, you know, if they are telling a story, if they're telling you exactly where it's made and exactly what they're doing and being a bit more descriptive about it, then I think that's a reason reasonably be good um, way little little plug as well for um, if you follow uh, fashion debates on Instagram at fashion debates um, we do a little feature called hashtag on Wednesdays we wear ethical um, and so on Wednesdays we share like a brand that we like that's doing something more ethically or more sustainably um, or whatever so if you literally follow the hashtag you'll just come up with like a load of pictures of brands and um, who are nice places to go shop so that's a quick way if you want to have a browse around and some nice brands but yeah it takes a bit of practice it takes a bit of research and getting to know but it's possible just very quickly yeah I, d- I just want to say I mean really quickly it sounds like hard work doesn't it? <laughs> like, it, it and I think it is at the moment sadly it is um, I mean and you're all here because this is the start of a change you know we are at the start of this movement um you know there are small brands like myself you know i have it in my label so if if you you know clearly um where the nylon comes from and the regeneration process but it's not clear to everyone else and that's not necessarily just because they're not producing it sustainably but we are at the start of the process and um you know i just say you're all here and and london fashion week it was all about sustainable fashion there were plugs everywhere livia firth hosted um, an evening at Buckingham Palace. Um, Meghan Markle was wearing Hyatt denim jeans the other week and they you know, sold out within that week. We're at the start of that movement and so I, I kind of hope it will get easier <laughs> to buy more ethically and sustainably. Yeah. Well, on that, on that very, very um, positive note, I think it's very, very high note. It's a really nice note to actually finish on because it can, you know, a lot of these sustainability things can be, seem quite apocalyptic sometimes and it doesn't have to be. Can I just, can I, can I thank a, a few people before we, before we go? Can I thank Stuart Rogers, Ginny Pavey and Maria Carvalho in the Grantham Research Institute for organising this event? And um, also we have to, of course, thank our fantastic panellists today for their amazing contribution. I found it truly fascinating. It inspired me to think more about what I buy. Um, And I hope this has been food for thought for all of you. So thank you very much.